from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America. You know, I would say that there are some areas where heart disease, there is there have been some improvements, um, and so there is potentially a, a light or maybe a flicker of a light at the end of that tunnel. But we still see very challenging numbers when it comes to things like diabetes, hypertension, um, and infant mortality. You know, the amount of African-American children um, who die in their first year of, of life, as well as maternal health and, you know, African-American women making it through pregnancy and living well, um, you know, we will start to see some very challenging numbers there. And so I would say that certainly there is always hope um, and aspirations, but we have a lot of very, very serious challenges in our community. Dr. Garth Graham, cardiologist, former Deputy Assistant Secretary at HHS in the Office of Minority Health and President of the Edna Foundation and Vice President of Community Health for Edna Incorporated. Dr. Graham is a leading expert on the social determinants of health. He has spoken about the health disparities that causes African Americans to suffer higher rates of dangerous health conditions such as heart disease, stroke, and diabetes. As a practicing cardiologist and professor of medicine, he oversees Community Health Initiative for the Edna Foundation. Bringing experience as the former Deputy Assistant Secretary at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services under the Obama and Bush administrations, where he also ran the Office of Minority Health. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Healthy Living with Dr. Garth Graham in Black America. Extremely important. Um, in fact, um, African-American men um, have some of the lowest numbers in terms of the required amounts of fresh fruits and vegetables or, or vegetable and fruit intake. Um, we used to um, run a program at, uh, from the Natural Cancer Institute. It was a program called the Nine a Day, and it was really kind of enforcing that we need to get a certain amount of um, fresh fruits and vegetables in each day to make sure we're healthy. And in our community, you know, there's so many challenges. A lot of folks live in food deserts where they don't have any access to um, fresh fruits and vegetables in terms of affordable options. And that's, again, one of those systemic things that we as a country and those of us in leadership roles need to be proactive about addressing. But also on an individual level, we also want to make sure that when those opportunities are there, people understand that it is vitally important for your own personal health to make sure that you are having the um, adequate amount of fresh fruits and vegetables uh, each day. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health, the death rate for African Americans was generally higher than whites for heart disease, stroke, cancer, asthma, emphysema, and pneumonia, diabetes, HIV, AIDS, and homicide. Communities of color still suffer the biggest burden when it comes to environmental discrimination. This includes landfills, oil-sake soil, contaminated with PCBs, truck depots, sewage treatment plants, and bulk gasoline storage tank farms. Dr. Garth Graham is a researcher, writer, and editor on health disparities. He is also the president of Edna Foundation. He is responsible for philanthropic work, such as grant-making strategies to improve the health of minorities. As the former Deputy Assistant Secretary in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in which he was the head of the Office of Minority Health, 
Dr. Graham, expertise in minority health gives him even more of a drive to improve these communities' health. Recently, In Black America spoke with Dr. Graham. So I was born in, in Jamaica, actually. But raised in, I guess partially raised in Jamaica and then partially raised in Miami, Florida. Came here when I was a teenager and grew, you know, spent my rest of my years in Florida and did my college in Florida at a, a school called Florida International University. Then eventually left there and did my medical school at Yale and um, uh, the rest of my training at Harvard in, in internal medicine and cardiology. And then, you know, have been involved in a lot of health policy and, and different things over the years. Brothers and sisters? Oh, brothers. There are two brothers and two sisters, all doing various different kinds of things, non-medical. Oh, I guess one sister's a doctor. I'm sorry, that was the wrong thing. So I guess one of them is, is pretty much medical. But the rest are, are in, in, in a lot of different fields in, in life. What initially attracted you to cardiology? Oh, you know, I think that there are two kind of fascinating organs in the body. One is your brain and one is your heart. Now, your brain controls a lot of your personality, but quite frankly, in my, my view, your heart is what keeps you alive. And so I think I was always interested in kind of all the different things that affects your heart and, and how that uh, plays out in life. It just so happens, you know, especially for African-American communities, the impact of heart disease and everything else that goes along with it um, is particularly important. Uh, you know, heart disease is the number one killer for both um, uh, men and women, um, you know, in high toll in minority communities. So I was interested in that from a kind of physiological level and also with the impact that it has on our populations. What brought you to Edna? Well, you know, Edna, even before I came, has always had a long track record and a long-standing issue dealing with uh, minority communities, and there's a lot of history it was one of the first companies to um, really make um, health disparities and tackling, improving health of African-American population, Hispanic populations, a priority. And so I knew about that from my prior lives. And so when, you know, conversation started and, you know, everything started looking interesting, it was, it was a comfortable professional move. And Yale School of Public Health, why was that important for you to attend that uh, university? Yeah, so, you know, when I was in medical school, I was also interested in understanding, again, not just, you know, about what you see with an individual patient, but what's happening um, with the community that the patient lives in. And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people think it's, it's really about kind of the medicines that we give, but really it's a community that you live in that dictates how long you live. So we often say your zip code matters more than your genetic code. And so public health was very important to understanding the kind of lives my patients were living. When you look at the health disparities that African Americans experience, and I've been doing this program a better part of 40 years, are we seeing any light at the end of the tunnel? Mm, that's, a good, that's a good question. You know, I would say that there are some areas where heart disease, there, is, there have been some improvements. Um, and so there is potentially a, a light or maybe a flicker of a light at the end of that tunnel. But we still see very challenging numbers when it comes to things like diabetes, hypertension, and infant mortality. You know, the amount of African-American children um, who die in their first year of, of life, as, long, as well as maternal health and, you know, African-American women making it through 
pregnancy and living well, you know, we will start to see some very challenging numbers there. And so I would say that certainly there is always hope um, and aspirations, but we have a lot of very, very serious challenges in our community. When we see a physician, how important it is for us to have our heart checked? Yeah, you know, especially once we get over the age of 40, you know, things like getting your cholesterol, once you get over the age of 20, you should have your blood pressure checked um, at least every couple of years as well as your cholesterol. Once you get over the age of 40, things start to become more frequent. You should get your blood pressure really checked yearly. You know, have to see your physician every year and have your cholesterol checked to be screened for diabetes um, and, all, and, and all of the things that can be silent killers. You know, people forget that many times the first time people are diagnosed with heart diseases with death. You know, up to a quarter of people the first time they know they have heart disease is when they die of a heart attack. And so, you know, going to see your physician um, allows you to and us to identify the problem earlier and potentially keep you alive. When you talk about seeing a physician, if you don't have health insurance, are there any other options that, that one could take? Yeah, you know, you know, I always think about my own personal life. And, you know, when I first kind of started interacting with the, the healthcare system, a lot of because of the financial challenges we had, you know, we um, would uh, get a lot of our care at places like community health centers. So there's a lot of d- options, um, certainly, um, um, you know, again, um, making sure that you get yourself checked. But to be honest with you, part of the problem is we as a country need to make sure that we also have better systems in place so that health insurance is not as defining a factor in your health as it is right now. So I, so I often say I don't, I don't like to place all of the blame or too much of the blame on the individual because we've got to make sure that we are taking care of all of our communities the same way. Talk to us about being a former Deputy Assistant Secretary at HHS. Yeah, so that was kind of an exciting opportunity. At the time, you know, we, and, and even now, you know, there have been a lot of national things happening in healthcare that disproportionately impact minority communities. And I was able, at the national level, to be involved in a lot of those things. At the time, you know, the Affordable Care Act was being passed and um, different things we were all trying to do to make the healthcare system better. And so it was a good way to be involved in those things at the national level and be able to deal with those problems, having either personally lived those problems myself or seen my patients go through it. And what I often say to people is this issue of how we take care of the kind of poor and marginalized parts of our society in healthcare has been the defining issue for our country forever, you know, for a long, long, long time, you know dating back even into the 1800s. So it's, it's always good to be a part of the efforts to try to do that, even if sometimes we have mixed successes. I understand. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio and speaking with Dr. Garth Graham, cardiologist, president of the Aetna Foundation and former deputy assistant secretary at HHS on the Obama and Bush administration. Dr. Graham, as a person from Detroit, there aren't that many in certain neighborhoods grocery stores. Mm-hmm. How important is it for individuals to have fresh fruits and vegetables as part of their daily diet? Extremely important. Um, in fact, um, African-American men um, have some of the lowest numbers in terms of the required amounts of 
fresh fruits and vegetables or vegetable and fruit intake. Um, we used to um, run a program at, at, from the Natural Cancer Institute. It was a program called the Nine a Day, and it was really kind of enforcing that we need to get a certain amount of um, fresh fruits and vegetables in each day to make sure we're healthy. And in our community, you know, there's so many challenges. A lot of folks live in food deserts where they don't have any access to um, fresh fruits and vegetables in terms of affordable options. And that's, again, one of those systemic things that we as a country and those of us in leadership roles need to be proactive about addressing. But also on an individual level, we also want to make sure that when those opportunities are there, people understand that it is vitally important for your own personal health to make sure that you are having the adequate amount of fresh fruits and vegetables uh, each day. How do we go about helping uh, nutrition take roots in these vulnerable communities? Yeah, so, you know, nutrition is such a defining factor because it's a lot of it is, you know, what's behind the rise in obesity, what's around the rise in um, um, high, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, and subsequent heart disease. So I think there's probably three things I would say. One is um, working to make sure that everybody has access to um, healthy food options. And so making it more easy for that to be the default decision when you want it so that um, kind of it's available. Two is making sure that um, access is one thing, um, but um, making sure that um, it's presented and um, in the way that um, is culturally acceptable people so that they can become a part of their daily life and their daily, daily activities. So understanding the cultural importance of how we all eat. You know, you um, having grown up in Detroit, there are certain ways in which your diet was flavored um, that um, made whatever food choices you made driven by that. And subsequently, we all have that based on our own cultural background. And then three, um, once we kind of get to that, again, understanding that it's important to have to kind of get that required amount on a daily basis um, once we've made it easier as a country for you to have that kind of access. Does Edna have any grant-making strategies towards this effort? Yeah, in fact, that's a big part of what we're trying to do. You know, we're funding some really interesting things. In fact, in Detroit, there are some amazing people doing work um, really to try and change the default in our community. So, for instance, the food lab in Detroit is led by a group of individuals that have been working to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables for folks from minorities' communities um, where they're food deserts. But also they're tying entrepreneurship to it so that it's not just a good thing to do, but that it is you know, fiscally um, rewarding for those people who are involved and kind of inspiring at the same time. So, you know, I think we have to, again, kind of work to make sure that people have access, but also making sure that it's sustainable. Does the health and nutrition disparities vary from coast to coast, from different regions in the country? Yeah, it does. Sometimes it, it, it differs from, from block to block because people forget, um, again, how important, you know, just how where you live, again, your actual zip code, how mm-hmm. important that is for your longevity, your morbidity, your mortality, and how long you'll live. So I would say it's not even that health disparities from block, from across a country differ in many cities. We often talk about you know, sometimes you can get on a train in Massachusetts and Boston and go from the red line uh, where people live on one end to 90 years and then go into some communities where people live to almost 60 years, um, and that's a 30-year lifespan, just 15 or 20 minutes on the red line. 
And so, you know, there's a lot of variation even within cities and towns, you know, and not just, you don't have to go, you know, far away just to see how different um, lives people live. Does these health and nutrition program transfer from one administration to the other? Uh, You know, it should because these are apolitical issues. This is about how we you know, make sure that we take care of the the most vulnerable people in our communities, whether that be by um, whatever different ways you want to categorize the vulnerability. And so my belief is that none of these things are even remotely political, and so it should transfer from administration to administration, from leader to leader, from uh, anybody who's responsible for communities should have this as a part of their agenda. How much does funding play into the implementation of these strategies and programs? Well, you know, funding is always important. It's one thing to have a wish and idea, Mm -hmm. but funding allows you to make it a reality. And for us, what we try to do is find those kinds of folks who are in communities, on the ground, doing the work, doing the large work, as my mom used to say, but doing the work that is vital to communities and people who understand their communities. If you can find those people and um, support their goals and aspirations, many times what you're doing there is providing fuel to the community to tackle some real issues. So I think that the solution for many communities is within the communities um, because that's where the brain power and the strength is uh, right there in those local communities. It's just connecting them with the resources to have them be able to achieve their goals. Are there any particular policies that you were a part of when you were at HHS that you're proud of? You know, I think we worked to make sure that in every state, um, or attempted to work to make sure in every state, whoever was in charge, would be Republican or Democrat, that they had a minority health agenda, meaning that there was somebody within that state, some infrastructure, some leadership within the health department or in other places that particularly was going to have tackling the needs of minority communities as a priority. And we're able to um, expand that during my time there, where the vast majority of states um, had um, some infrastructure dedicated to um, tackling the issues that are pertinent to minority communities. So I think that's the kind of thing that made us feel the most rewarding, because what happens in D.C. only matters if it affects the lives of people outside of D.C. So we were really more um, interested in how how we could kind of spread that 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 infrastructure and change to to states across the board. How has gun violence affected the health and well-being of some of these communities? Yeah. So you know, gun violence is a is a real interesting challenge. As as you probably know, in most of our major cities gun violence is on the rise. Mm-hmm. And the people forget that it's not just about the actual victim from either homicide or even a suicide um, or something related. You know, there is people who are injured. There's family members that are impacted. There are people who just witness this and then have PTSD because of that. And there's a huge undergrowth the epidemic of PTSD in a lot of our urban communities from people who have witnessed extreme levels of violence but have never been provided with either the, the, the clinical, psychiatric, or any other kind of support mechanism to deal with what they've witnessed. So there is an epidemic of gun violence, not just limited to the people who live or die in an actual conflict, but the people who are impacted, and sometimes for generations to come, especially when you have young people who are you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, sometimes even younger, who witness horrific things that adults 
would be forever changed when they see, and then they see it as little children. And so, you know, we have to forget, we often forget about the impact that gun violence has on survivors as well. Dr. Graham, talk to us about the Kansas City Youth and Family Violence Prevention Plan. Yeah, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different local strategies that we've seen that we think have shown hope. Um, in Kansas City, they have implemented uh, something called the AIM, AIM for Peace program, which is a Centers for Disease Control program. And what they try to do there is treat gun violence as any disease, like you have hypertension and diabetes. And you try to identify the risk factors and treat them in a preventative way. So you might look at what are the kinds of things that lead to a hostile situation and then lead to an actual violent act. And then before you even get to that, what are the kinds of coping mechanisms and things that you can teach um, young people, older people, anybody involved to try to de-escalate these things before they rise? Because gun violence or homicides, again, are things, the actual act is often the result of multiple things leading up to that. So just like in a disease process, you have multiple potential intervention points where you can intervene to make um, either that incident not happen or make uh, people healthier. So we often say that, you know, violence is a public health issue and we should treat it many times um, like how we treat health issues. I understand that you found the Boston Men's Cardiovascular Health Project? Yes, yes. So Talk that to us project, about that. That project was um, going to the very issue that you brought up in the beginning about fresh fruits and vegetables. And what we were trying to do there is to tee, it was targeted directly towards men. And we were trying to find and target uh, men who are in high-risk health situations. And really, African-American men face a number of potential problems in terms of our own health. And really teach and train them in issues around diet and exercise so that they would then um, serve as examples for other generations of men. So it was directly um, targeting, you know, the, the, the cultural ways in which we need to reach African-American men, letting them understand that, you know, getting, as you just pointed out earlier, going to the doctor, getting your checkups, that's manly as thing as you can do. Um, and developing a relationship with a doctor is a manly thing as you can do. And that you need to teach your sons that, your cousins, you know, your grandsons, that taking care of their own health is pretty important. You know, one of the things we used to see in these scenarios, even though we were teaching men, is that African-American women who take care of sometimes multiple generations within their own household would often even put their own health aside. So even though we're targeting men, we realized that reaching women was particularly important as well. I'm glad you brought that up. Are the generations getting smarter regarding their health? That's a really good question. You know, I, I, you know, uh, one of the things that's coming up for the younger generation that's making me, 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 what's the word I would say, want to, to make sure that they understand this is things like e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have this huge explosion now in the younger population around e-cigarettes, and it's leading to potentially the same kind of challenges that we saw with regular cigarettes in terms of health outcomes. It has a lot of nicotine in it. But when you see this repetitive cycle where the, this is starting to explode again in a younger generation, makes us realize that we always need to reach back to where we have all been and make sure that folks are um, educated, that young people make informed decisions, and that they understand that you can, make, you can make decisions in your youth. I mean, most people 
start smoking in their teenage years um, and in high school and in, in middle school. So you can make decisions even just as a kid, said those are their kids, that last and impact the rest of your life forever. So, you know, we have to kind of help make sure that they have all the information to make the right decisions. To piggyback on that answer, are you seeing an increase in people of color interested in the health health field? In the health field? Oh, um, yeah, definitely. You know, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of young people who have aspirations to help their community. Um, I was that same way when I was, you know, um, trying to figure out what to do with my life when there were limited opportunities at different times. And the thing we have to do, particularly for young people of color, is encourage their interests, let them know that they're needed in our community, that their success means our success, but then they need practical avenues to be able to get to that point. And every point matters from just learn, you know, making sure that they get enough um, words, um, learning enough words um, in their first couple of years of life, all the way to them uh, making sure they have a strong GPA when they graduate high school and college. Uh, we got to support our um, young folks all the way through there. But there's a lot of interest in people, um, more so I think nowadays than before, um, interested in impacting their community. By no means I'm a hater of fast foods, but having a fast food diet on a constant basis, how detrimental is that to one's health? Pretty bad, yes. Pretty bad, and in fact, that's what we see in a lot of food deserts in our community. There is, we call them food deserts, meaning there's food around, but it's all fast food and unhealthy food. So mm-hmm. the desert is a desert, meaning that there's no healthy food options. And this guy by the name of Tom Leviste, who is now down in Louisiana, we used to be at Hopkins, and published a lot of good data showing that the frequency of these fast food outlets and similar kinds of places is, is, is inversely related to how long we live in our communities. So meaning the more you see of them, that's, that's the worst we're doing because that's the only option we have. So, you know, we got to work as a, as a country to kind of um, help change that so that people have more um, healthy food options. Before we run out of time, Dr. Graham, what are some of the things that one should do on a daily basis as far as eating a certain amount of four or five food groups? That's right. All right. So, you know, I always tell patient because of all the information we get on diets, we're bombarded with which diet works. One week, that diet was good. The next week, it's bad. It, you know, and I always say, first, look for healthy food options that you like, not that Kim Kardashian likes or somebody famous likes. What do you like to do? And then if you look at that, you need to then um, make sure you decrease the amount of fats, trans fats within things you like and increase the amount of fruits and vegetables. And then get to the point where you're eating, you know, anywhere up to nine servings of fruits and vegetables that you like, the kind of things you like. Some people um, like cauliflower, some people don't. You know, whatever it is that you like, structure it around you and your, your taste buds and the things you like. And as you do that, don't forget that you've got to also keep moving physically. So, you know, at least half an hour, four to five days out of the week, if not five days out of the week, of um, any kind of exercise, even if it's just walking around um, your neighborhood, uh, as long as it's safe to do so, or, or other places. But always starting with the beginning because uh, the beginning is what matters so much. Dr. Goff Graham, cardiologist, former Deputy Assistant Secretary at HHS in the Office of Minority Health, and President of the Edna Foundation and Vice President of Community Health for Edna Incorporated. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, Email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard us over. 
Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.